Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Today, we're so excited to have Brooke Summers Perry joining us on our podcast In Between. We get to hear from her about her expertise in nonviolent communication and all the ways she applies it to her work. I love that, Bill, again, I said this last week with Richard, you have made this like web of connections. Brooke is also a longtime friend, largely because of Ordinary Life. Mm -hmm. We got to meet there and had babies around the same time. And she found my beloved dog once, which made her ever a hero in my mind. (laughs) Or my beloved dog found her. I'm not sure which way it went. Uh, When I had kind of thought he was already run over by a car. And anyways, so we have been friends because of Ordinary Life and have gotten to intersect on a lot of different things together. And she's one of the people in the world that I hope is a lifer and who I deeply admire and love. Well, Richard Wingfield, whom we interviewed last week, uh, asked me a long time ago if I would come to Jackson Ryan Architects and help process, um, help do a grief process because there'd been an unexpected death among employees there and Brooke worked there at the time and um, for some reason, she thought I had something else to say, and so she started coming to Ordinary Life, and one thing led to another. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, ex- that's exactly right. But that that reason that I thought you had something to offer could speak volumes to the way the work that you do and the way you show up in the way in the world the way you do made it possible for me to turn my curiosity back on about spirituality and religion. Mm-hmm. That first introduction with you was well crafted by the universe, if you believe in those things. I do. Because the, um, the two women who suddenly lost their lives their, their religious journeys had a great deal to do with how we were grieving the way we were grieving. And explaining your perception of Christianity and Buddhism allowed us to each grieve the way we needed to grieve, um, regardless of our religious upbringing, mm-hmm. and to really deepen into what it means to live a full life. I use um as a space holder. I'm just going to say that. So like, I love the pause. So if the pause has to use the two letters um, then I'm going to bring that pause. <laughs> so, okay. so this friend of ours who had suddenly died, who was Buddhist, had lived such an incredible life in the moment that her passing became a huge lesson for us and Bill's explaining her rich practice and how it allowed for us to let her go. So, you know, quicker Mm. than we would have imagined because many of us went to college with her. Um, We had, you know, longer friendships with her. 
And that work really set the seed for me. Mm. So that when I had a midlife crisis and I had a spiritual experience, Bill was the only person on the planet I felt comfortable talking to about my religious beliefs, upbringing, and this like, what the heck just happened to me? Like I now know that it was, it was a very significant spiritual experience like Thomas Merton's and I just didn't know it at the time. I had never read Thomas Merton or any of that, but, but Bill opened all that possibility up to me because I trusted him and I knew he wasn't gonna try to evangelize me. I knew that I was safe. So that, that little phrase you used about uh, how our paths cross is just loaded with yeah. how my life has changed since then because of you so you know mm-hmm. deep bowing to the master yeah. <laughs> namaste y'all and you are a wisdom teacher in your own right yeah so i get to share some of the things i've learned and be you know as much like the teacher as possible just try to be in in the moment and um be humble yeah one of the things that um holly and i got to do um in my previous job was make t-shirts with the slogan that helps me remember my humility (laughs) and um the phrase is being human is hilarious and i want to make sure i say that here because if i come off sounding like i know anything yeah more than anyone else on the planet or with any kind of pride that's unwarranted i got to remember all the ways I've failed <laughs> that lo- that brought me to any of the practices I speak of. And almost any example, I know for me this is true, that I can use about how maybe not to do something in air quotes, I've done myself. <laughs> I literally came across this quote today. I'm, I'm coming to you from Richard's office because um, he's, he's allowing me to have some studio space in here. And um, I came across Yeah, I came across this quote on one of the boxes that he has stacked in here that says, I I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways it won't work. (laughs) That's right. Said Thomas Edison before he invented the light bulb. (laughs) Yes, said Thomas Edison. One of the things that that we've been sort of dialoguing about over the last couple of weeks is the Eightfold Path, the Buddhist Eightfold Path. And we just sort of are in this place of talking about right speech, right action. And we really have kind of channeled you the last couple of weeks and saying, well, we really ought to talk to Brooke Summers Perry about NVC because it is in essence right speech. And that either it's, it provides a way to do, you and I have talked about this a lot. It's a strategy, not the golden, the only but it's a strategy to achieve compassionate communication. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a question for you, Brooke, because it's something that Holly and I struggle with. And that is that um, we're in this, Holly calls it apocalyptic time, a time of unveiling of the systemic racism that's been part of this country's history from the very beginning. And also, 
how we have created systems that discriminate against minority people that are unfair and unjust. And there is, as you know, angry rhetoric on both sides of the divide that is hurting us so much. And we don't want to create, we don't want to contribute to that angry rhetoric. But really, some things have to be spoken about pretty strongly. And I'm wondering from your um, point of view as somebody who is skilled at nonviolent communication, what advice would you give us about how to do this without irritating people? Probably the biggest lesson that I've learned from trying to put nonviolent communication into practice is that the conflict is coming from the strategy level. So when we talk about racism, we're talking about, to me, the anger is coming from an attachment to strategies. And some systems and some people's strategies block out the access to resources and strategies of whole groups of people. For me, nonviolent communication is so much more than communication. It is a way to go through change individually and systemically using the creative process and Buddhist practice of non-attachment, of, of being able to recognize what is, like you're always teaching, and be able to accept the strategies that I've been using have been blocking whole groups of people from having access to strategies that ought to be serving them too, to meet all the needs that we share. Mm -hmm. For me, nonviolent communication is a very heady way to get in touch with my emotions. I was so completely <laughs> detached from my emotions that they had me, right? Um, but nonviolent communication allowed me to take this process to break it down and look at mm -hmm. the, I'll, I'll go through the four steps. Hopefully I'm answering your question. If I get off track, interrupt me. Mm -hmm. But the first step in the four step process for conflict resolution is observation and observing like a camera. It's saying, if you are going to spend time unpacking what is happening, then the first thing you need to do is take all the sensational language and drama out of the story. What actually happened like a camera would report it. Then what feelings do you have that come up with that whatever happened, what are you feeling in the moment? And then what needs are those feelings telling you you're trying to get at? And then you move to request and that from recognizing what needs you're trying to meet. And that is needs like as simple as security and safety, um, the, the basic survival needs, all the way to purpose and meaning and, you know, the myriad of, of needs that we all have as humans. Going from understanding what you're trying to get met to how am I going to do that? What strategy am I going to choose? What am I asking of other people to participate in in order for those needs to be met? And here's the, here's the real rub. 
for me and for everyone else involved. Mm -hmm. that, that compromise is not necessarily the solution, but getting, let's say like we both have this need for security, the difference usually lies in the strategies we're using to, to get that need met. Yes, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and this to me, this is where the heart of like, the whole notion of pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Well, that's all fine and good if we're talking the same bootstraps here. Like we we don't have we don't we haven't all been given the same the first time we assume that anybody has the same bucket of resources and strategies, we're just not being realistic. We need to look at, you know, we need to look at all of the choices we actually really have. Um, access to. So I haven't met a problem that NVC hasn't helped me with yet. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Because the feelings of outrage of, you know, just being overcome with rage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you spend enough time getting to the needs that are underneath it and the perceptions and you get to what would work better for everybody, then you're on the side of curiosity and creativity and compassion and serving the greater good. Mm -hmm. You know, Brooke, I, I have said publicly, and I don't know that, that this is a helpful thing to say or believe, but I have said that it, I, my personal experience is that it's very difficult, if not impossible for me to have a conversation with a fundamentalist, with a rigid religious fundamentalist. Um, and I'm wondering when I heard you say what you did about resources, I've encountered in my background a lot of people who believe that if everybody just worked hard enough, they would have what I have. And meaning that their assumption is that everybody does have the capacity to pull themselves up with the bootstrap and that's simply not objectively true and so when i encounter somebody who believes that i feel like oh, i don't know i don't know how to deal with that yeah that's a topic yeah that one of the things we were talking about brooke is that what are things and josh and i have this conversation a lot too it's like there are some things that just need to be said that is not so and then maybe we can spend the time unpacking it compassionately or saying it more compassionately and that's sort of where many of us find ourselves right now right is this um racism exists most of us have participated in racist systems brutality exists it does not mean that all police are brutal Right. So speaking truth to these things without closing down the listening or the ability to hear. Yeah. My initial reaction and um, I'll beat myself up later about whether or not this is true, but I really feel like two things come to mind. One is how able is the person I'm speaking to? How able are they to believe that something else is true? What type of 
um, story is so embedded in their life? What kind of shame, what kind of trauma has made them get so attached to their belief and their point of view that they can't believe that anything else is true? And secondly, I turn into a storyteller. I want to start giving evidence of all the people I know that are tr that are facts yeah. that prove why what they're saying is not true. And sadly, I use way too many words to do that and I will lose people. <laughs> but I know, but I know because I know people who are, you know, evidence of people who have done more backbreaking work than anyone. And, and I just can't represent their stories well enough and it frustrates the crap out of me. Yeah. I so hear that. Like we can point to, let's say, even just laborers in our own city who do so much sweating, backbreaking, difficult labor, who have worked really hard yeah. and still are in poverty. Yeah. And, but if a person is shut down to hearing the truth, I'm not sure, Yeah, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons why I've spent so much of the last few years trying to get into healing work mm. and healing trauma and mm. sitting with pain. Mm. Um, I find that very fulfilling to watch someone shift, but it's not the big shifts we hope for at, you know, a happy hour when right. people are chatting about these kinds of things. Like, but I feel like I get farther when I'm sitting with someone one-on-one -on -one in a situation where they've shown up because they want to heal and they want to change. I, I, I think that last thing you said is really key. I have acquaintances. I wish I could say they were friends. I've talked to them and we've had friendly relationships, but one uh, woman who lives in North Ireland and one woman who lives in Israel, and they have given themselves to um, work of reconciliation in Ireland, between North Ireland and Ireland and in, in uh, Israel, between Palestinians and Israelis. And I, I respect and admire their work. That's just amazing. But what has to happen for them even to facilitate a conversation is that you have to have the two sides of these disagreements willing to be in the same room to, with each other. And that's a heroic step. And I'm hearing you say that we, if you can't take that, it's pretty hopeless. But if you can take it, work can be done. Yeah. I'll also say that another reason creativity to me is, is part of the antidote, if not the antidote. Um, I'm, I'm really into it right now. That if the attachment is to a strategy, mm -hmm. if you can introduce the strategy that works for both people, you can loosen the grip right. on the one that somebody's really attached to. If the new one works even better for them than the old one, they won't even know they're letting go of it. Mm -hmm. So mm. that's another key way I've found in parenting. <laughs> Thank you, creator to find a way to shift behaviors. Yeah. Um, it's not about punishing the way, it's not about shaming the old way. It's about, here's a new way of showing up in the world. Here's a new way that you can, you know, get other needs met. Like when you have children start to wash the dishes or do chores 
for you, guess what? Not only are they helping you out and supporting you, but they're also getting their need met for competence, feeling like they can do it themselves, right? So additional needs are being met by changing the strategy. And I think there's a lot of power in that way of thinking when we're talking about systemic change right now. Mm -hmm. If we can find ways to shift our systems that work better for the people who are against any change, if it works better for them too, then we've got a chance right. because they don't have to agree with um, one person's better than the other or, um, you know, out of everyone's desire to get a whole lot of needs met. Yeah. We can ride the strategies into change yeah. rather than trying to change people's hearts, which takes a whole different set of vulnerability and um, things that I don't hear people are willing to go to yet when it comes to these sorts of things. So when I, I heard you talk about storytelling, uh, if you have listened to Holly and me uh, in Ordinary Life the last several Sundays, you know that we both have been reading Braiding Sweetgrass. Which yeah. you read too, correct? Yeah. And he yeah. read that, I love yeah. that book. And I've not finished reading it, but there's a wonderful story mm -hmm in braiding sweetgrass about the three sisters. Oh, yes. About how corn and beans and squash need to be planted together and to grow up together. And I thought, man, if I could just have a, a way to get that story out into the hearts and minds of people, that would that extends a possibility of making a big change. Yeah. There's something, I love that story also. There's so many good nuggets in that book. I remember when you were reading it actually, Brooke, um, and I downloaded it around that time and started listening to it. And then Bill mentioned, I was like, I never finished that book. So I have been refurbishing a door and listening to <laughs> Braiding Sweetgrass <laughs> and finished both the door and the book yesterday. So that's Yay. exciting. But yeah, awesome. two things that you said Beautiful. that really... Um, or sitting with me and correct me if I'm misunderstanding, but I think I heard you say that that sort of heart change, that sort of, I was here, now I'm there. I was blind, now I see. That's actually an incremental process. And that's what you're really good at, just sitting with people in those incremental steps. And then kind of stepping back and going, I don't know if you remember, but when we started, you were here. And I just want to notice that you're here now. And I, um, I've been able in our friendship to like witness myself in those moments with your reflection and that's a gift you have. And the other thing I was gonna say is this, oh gosh, I need you to like be my dissertation co-writer because one of the things I want to really investigate is the process of creativity and healing. And I mean, I don't mean creativity paint to canvas necessarily, but that's a way, but the, what does it mean to approach things as an artist artistically, so to speak, with a creative mind? You know, it's like walking around the sculpture and kind of going, oh, that needs to happen from this angle. And maybe this needs to happen from this angle. And I'd love to hear you talk about creativity. And yeah, I, um, I recently, it's so funny you brought this up. I, I can't not use visuals, but. Love. Oh, I wish that the podcast could see this sign that says living the creative process. Yeah. Yeah. 
if you're willing, maybe we can put that as like a visual to the to the podcast Absolutely. and attribute. Absolutely, I um, yeah. a, as you know, I'm I'm trying to launch a business around this with partners and a team of facilitators, mm -hmm. and the real goal is to apply the creative process to life, and um, and I think mm -hmm. a lot of the best spiritual practices do that. Integrate, integrate, integrate. It is not all brain and all heart and all spirit. It is everything together. Like, and it takes. That's also true. In order to have sustainable right action, you need all those things working together. And yeah. it's a braided piece of sweetgrass. Yeah, it, exactly. And oh my gosh, I I found out shortly after I started reading Braiding Sweetgrass that the Oneida Nation that my family is from is part of the um, the group of of seven Haudenosaunee and the Thanksgiving. Yes, I'm a, I'm a Haudenosaunee, so that's my yeah, that's my ancestry as well. And um, we we used in Conspire class we used that prayer um, for a multi week class and broke it down um, and. You know, you know, my um, my new world order includes um, every business meeting needs to end with a dance party. Well, I think every business meeting needs to start with that prayer. Yes. Yeah. Um, so let's see the pre the creative process. Um, I really think it's about being open to doing things differently. To me, it's right in line with the eightfold path. It's right in line with letting go of not what's not serving you or what not what's not serving others or letting go of attachments. That you can't be creative if your bucket is full of attachments. Right. <laughs> you know. So, um, and I think so often in our culture, we rush to the solution. And I learned this from Richard Wingfield's class that he recently taught us um, that is just miraculously about productivity, but it's really a spiritual practice. Yeah. We, we so want people to have the answer right away. And then we judge, 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 judge it. We skip the brainstorming process. We, you know, we skip the whole, what need are we trying to fill? You know, yeah. um, we don't test things out. We just, throw something out there and judge the crap out of it. And that's right. just like, that keeps us in our head and in, and in reactive feelings. It skips all the best part. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, um, I have been blessed with the opportunity to sit with um, young patients at MD Anderson, one-on-one mm -hmm. -on -one bedside. And this, idea of being with and exploring and giving some prompts either with abstract art or with writing and allow a safe space for people to explore what is that has taught me so much about what the human spirit can hold and see beauty in mm -hmm. um and it has it has deeply changed the way i have shifted from this dualistic idea about head and heart mm -hmm. the first 10 years of you know my my time in 
in ordinary life was really about trying to figure out what my heart wanted. I had shut it off so much in my pursuit of, you know, being somebody and having this fancy career and all that business. And, and the last, the last three years has really been about integrating, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and using the creative process to do that and holding space for people to heal. There's so much pain underneath these attachments and these beliefs and these things that are causing so much trouble in the world. Yeah. Um, like when we see, I, I said this in a conversation between Josh and me the other day, to use the example that sparked a lot of the unrest right now, the death of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin. What immense pain Derek Chauvin must have somewhere in order to disconnect from the person upon whose neck he was kneeling. Yeah. That's about all the compassion I can muster. But I can yeah. see that, that there must be pain there. I just, um, I just recommended the documentary, The Dhamma Brothers, again, and I haven't seen it for a few years and I need to go back and read it, but it's about um, inmates in a maximum security prison in, I believe it's Alabama. They, um, I, I can't remember how many, um, I don't know, the number seven is in my head, um, but they had, all, they were all in there for murder. Um, and they did a 10-day Vipassana um, meditation with them. And I think watching their transformation opened my head and my heart. Um, I am, I'm like you, I have to, you know, it takes a lot for me. It takes a lot of energy to try to even hold the notion that there's enough pain to warrant anything. Right like what happened yeah. to George Floyd yeah. and so many, many others. others. Like it, yeah. it's, it's too much. And at the same time, one thing I think I get from spiritual practice is some patience to sit with my own mm. pain. Around that pain. Um, and, and to look at my mm. own pain and to change the way I show up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because I don't see myself as somebody that can cause, that can solve any big problems. Um, I really have to break it down into the little next right action. Mm -hmm. What is right mm -hmm. now? Mm -hmm. Um, and that energizes me, you know, I, I, um, I always think of the word generative that I, you know, generative spirituality that I, I learned from the sisters at the Senecal in the Spiritual Direction Institute institute program and that's my discernment practice mm. i try to place myself in jobs and in volunteer positions where the work that i'm doing that serves love in the world mm -hmm. gives me energy mm -hmm. and i know it is not my place to do to do public speaking or to try to change minds in a big way thank heavens there are people who get energized by doing that. But my work is 
in one-on-one -on -one holding the story that is and being curious and compassionate. And um, as Bill's always saying, I cannot show up that way at all unless I'm doing my own practice or I'll be consumed. Yeah. Um, but it surprises me how much strength I can have if, if I'm doing my own practice, if I'm writing in my own journal, if I'm doing the practices that I'm offering other people. Because mm -hmm. um, it's, one, it's one moment at a time. And if I have expectations to make a big shift or a big change in the world, then my ego needs to sit down and shut the you know what up. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. I, because I know it's not mine to do. Like I said, thank heavens there are people who, who have that and get that gift and that energy of doing that. But I've learned as much as my ego wanted me to have that kind of position, I know that's not my, that's not mine. You know, one of the things that I think could be a blessing out of this pandemic is that we're all being forced into a kind of monastic life mm. where um, we're being required, as it were, to develop some patience. And um, I, I remember, Brooke, I don't know if you and I have talked about this in the past or not, but 25 or 30 years ago, uh, I encountered a book called Raising Self-Reliant Children in a Self-Indulgent World. Mm. Did you know that book? And, I do not. And, and it was authored by a man named Stephen Glenn. And he talked about um, how to talk to children in a way that develops their own self-reliance. And uh, one of the first things he talked about was taking the time to explore the meaning behind what your child says and does. And we don't do that in this culture because we prize efficiency, not effectiveness. And if we could get in a position where we wondered if what we are doing in our public life and our policy is really effective, we might pull back and decide to change some things. And we get, we're being given that opportunity right now. Hmm? Your ex. Yeah. Brooke has this beautiful illustration. I, that I, if she wants to talk about it, I'd love to invite her to of the ex of your kind of children start completely dependent. Yeah. To to I'll send that yeah. to you. It was based on sometimes when I hear things I don't fully understand, I get 2D diagrams in my head, which was firing yeah. like crazy when I was listening to Ilya Delio. At one point I do a picture of my brain exploding <laughs> oh my gosh. in my journal during her talk. I need a really big canvas. What's happening? I know. Um, but, um, yeah. but, I, when I first heard the poem by Seamus Haney, Scaffolding, this image came to mind about, and I wish I had it with me, I'd read it. You might have to pull it up and attach it to the podcast or something. But yeah. um, the image that came to mind to me was this, um, this ramp, basically, of when a child is born, they all of their needs have to be met by someone outside of themselves and over the span of their maturing you want there to be a nice steady line going down where that responsibility is relieved <laughs> gets relieved by those adults and you have another line 
that starts at zero that grows. And in the language of nonviolent communication, that is strategies, strategies to get your own needs met, to empower, to be empowered and, um, you know, to look out uh, for your own being reliant on yourself. So what's, what's so fascinating is the place where those two lines cross in the middle is like the teenage years where the batons being passed mm -hmm. where the control goes from the parent to the child mm -hmm. right and i really needed to come across that when i did because i start i was using nonviolent communication and parenting as a way to be a permissive parent mm. And I was so connecting to the meeting and why the behavior was happening that I would rush in and solve the problem. And what I really needed to do was empower the child to find ways to work it out for themselves. So it took like, thankfully I have three children and they know they can tell you that our parenting lives looks like huge shifts in that diagram. <laughs> the pendulum swinging from one extreme to the other. Mm. But the goal, the goal is to let go and have the child have all the tools they need to meet their own needs and not be in competition for everyone else in doing it. I mean, that's where nonviolent communication overlays mm. with this like compassion and understanding every human being on this planet is trying to do the same thing. And, and you know, if we're truly spiritual beings and believe in oneness, then we can respect that what our choices have an effect on other people. Mm -hmm. And the best we can do is at least recognize that the strategies we choose affect others' ability yeah. to get their needs met or have strategies. So anyway, um, yeah, I'll have to show you that graphic, yeah. but it's um, it can help us recognize really enabling. I mean, it's the same thing when you enable yeah. people to keep behaviors or strategies that really don't serve them, but make life a little more convenient for you. You're not doing, <laughs> you're not really looking at the whole picture, right? And what's best for everybody. Right. I think that, that we've also created a culture where we've made it permissible for people to believe that they do value things like oneness in the abstract. Mm -hmm. There's an old saying somewhere about this guy who said, I like mankind, I just don't like people. I like Christianity, I just don't like Christians, same kind yeah, of thing. That, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. And so it's an abstract idea, but when we invite, when we are invited to make this real in our own lives, that, that becomes something else yeah. entirely. Yeah, and, and, you know, this is a perfect place for me to pitch my new business endeavor because that's exactly what we're trying to do um i've come up with some pretty snarky taglines which i'm <laughs> trying not to say right now but please do pitch away <laughs> that will become t-shirts yes <laughs> but one is content is just clutter unless it creates change you know so i was a workshop junkie i did it for probably five years it wasn't all or nothing. I was trying to make change, but I was bypassing the crap out of that content. <laughs> you know, it's so much easier to think about things to, than to actually live through your heart with that, Yeah. you know, with those notions. Um, 
But that's why to me, you know, our, our business is about practice. It's about where the rubber hits the road. You know, it's, it's time to stop talking about it and start doing it. And yes, we're gonna fall on our face, but we have each other and we need a community. We need a place where we belong. I gotta say one more thing I love. Do you remember, do you guys watch the um, movie, The World According to Garp? Yes, it's been a while, mm -hmm. but yeah. Okay, all right. You know when the plane crashes into the house? Yes. And they buy it anyway? Yeah. Because it was pre-disastered? <laughs> this country doesn't know how to accept that. Yeah. Like, give me a leader who's already fallen on their face. Right. Because they've probably learned, if they've gotten back to where they are now and they want our attention, they've probably been do doing some practice, yeah. right? Yeah. We are so quick to just like, oh gosh, no, not them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. Right. I mean, we learn from failure and we, as a country, as a, you know, this economy driven whatever i bill speaks to it so much better than i do but our values are just out of whack when it comes to practice and learning from failure right. and changing behavior that transformation is not a box to check but an ongoing process of return and return and return and that's what i think about the eightfold path is not this like i start here and i get here it's I start here, then I return here, then I return here, then I return here. Yeah. So there's this great story about Watson, who was the chairman of IBM, who had an employee who screwed up an order that cost the company something like $80,000. This is years ago when that was a lot of money. Still a lot of money. And so the yeah. employee went to Watson with his resignation in hand and said, I'm ready to, to quit. And Watson said, oh, no, you don't. I just paid $80,000 right. to have you educated. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, Brooke, what is the business? What's the business? So it started out as Practice Houston, which is an evolution of Conspire, which is, as you know, the lab class for ordinary life. Um, so what the experiment was, what if I take the Conspire class practice circle notion out of a church environment into a secular space and make it available for people um, who, who like me a few years ago, wouldn't come into a church for something like that. And, um, and it just, it started with curiosity and then this whole notion of integration. As you all know, when I was at the Heinz Center, I got to work with a lot of people who do a lot of really great work in the world um, in, all, in all forms of mind, body, and spirit work and practices. Mm -hmm. And this was a way for me to um, go back into that work that I was in there, um, uh, making connections with people and um, making practice available and making a place of belonging available while we kind of stumble trip stumble trip in a place mm -hmm. where uh, we're all in it together and most of us as um as facilitators most of us have come to this work by some tough experience by some face plant we did in our lives mm -hmm. and um and we we're integrating these things now so for instance parenting with nonviolent communication might be the best thing you can offer someone on your corporate team 
Mm -hmm. It's not maybe not about performance in the workplace and time management. It may be support with what's going on at home. These things are not compartmentalized, and I don't think our practices ought to be either. So right. our, our business is really about taking the content that we have absorbed over the years, learning from our own challenges with it in our attempts to apply it, and then simplifying it and distilling it and going like truly integrating. Um, I'm currently finally um, taking uh, the coach certification for SQ21 with Cindy, Cindy Wigglesworth. Oh, cool. Yeah, and um, it's really firing me up because that's where this team is going. This team is going into integrating practices. It, we have people who are, who are certified in emotional intelligence and um, mindfulness-based stress reduction and nonviolent communication and the Enneagram and Richard's, you know, productivity for peace, um, all of these things that integrate really well. So we're looking at creating a model that allows, um, allows people to follow their longing. Mm. And maybe they don't even know if it's a work problem or a personal problem or, you know, some soft skills. Right. Have we gotten far far enough away from teaching soft skills? That's my big question. Yeah. Like yeah. the essential skills of getting along, problem solving, you know, working in collaboration, all those things, you know, we're we don't teach those until they're a problem. So this is I haven't I don't have my two minute elevator speech down yet. Um, but we are using the agreements and the structure of healing circles mm -hmm. to run our practice groups so that there's a leader in every chair. Um, the real teacher is inside, is the guide inside of each person in every chair. And we use silence to access that guide. And we don't try to solve or, you know, solve problems or fix each other. So those are the agreements that we follow. And it allows us to be honest about what we're struggling mm -hmm. with in the content that we're sharing so we can actually change and not bypass this conversation uh, which we need to bring to a close stirs up a deep wish in me and that is that there were more people in the world like you absolutely so just keep working on that brooke like just you know sharing your magic one web link at a time <laughs> And soon we'll have yeah. that wish. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I don't have any words that I can share that express my gratitude for that statement, Bill, because I just want to throw it all back to you and to Holly and everybody I've met because I came to Ordinary Life the first time. Mm. Um, so all of it's getting thrown right back at you across the tennis court net. Um, I love you. <laughs> I love you all dearly. And I thank you. Love you too. I'm so glad that you got to be our second podcast guest, maybe third, maybe third. Anyways, <laughs> I'm just so grateful and I'm so glad to know you. Um, I think the world of you. So thanks for joining us. I second all of that. Thanks. And you know, I'm going to, I want to end with being human is hilarious. Yes. <laughs> yes. It is. Because <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll fall flat on my face before my head hits the That's pillow right. again tonight. <laughs> Just another opportunity to return. <laughs> yep. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. Okay. Bye.